Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, we are deep into the quarantine, but we are still hanging in there. Albert, it's a pleasure to see you again, and I'm uh, really excited to do this. I've been looking forward to this all week. So how have you been? You're you're up there having a good time. <laughs> well, you know, three weeks ago, I got in a car in Manhattan like I do every Friday night, and we come up to the house and uh, cross over uh, the, the, the bridge into Westchester and up into Columbia County. And, you know, n- little did I know that we'd be here three weeks later and not leaving and, and getting recommendations from people back in the city uh, to not come back. Um, so that that was just something. I mean, I, we literally just left the apartment you know, not even thinking about any of this. So that's kind of a slightly unsettling, uh, unsettling feeling. But I mean, obviously being out, uh, you know, at a house with some backyard, you can walk outside and, and see some trees. That feels great. But, you know, I have uh, a company back in New York and employees and um, the people living in New York, you could see the extra stress on people that you didn't see even a week ago. And, um, you know, this is obviously we're in for the, the long haul on this, and I'm sure we're all going to be fine. Always in the midst of our hardest moments, it's impossible to realize that, that it's all going to pass. And even the hardest of it, it's going to, a lot of it's just going to be memories that go away real fast when we get back to our real lives. But in the present tense, it's, it's stressful and it's sad. And it's a lot of, you know, just thinking of all the missed opportunity and all the loss and, uh, yeah, it's not. It's it's easy to give in to a certain kind of uh, 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 fatalism about it, but at the same token, you know, we it's really important that we keep uh, inspiring each other and pushing each other and holding on uh, to our confidence because that's really what this is all about. It's about our confidence. Definitely, I saw a meme today on Instagram, and it just gave me uh, that warm feeling, you know. And it was when this is all over, I'm gonna hug your face off. And I was just like, (laughs) yes, like totally. Like I, um, today actually, uh, in Allegheny County and that's where Pittsburgh's at is they did like the shelter in place. We're on total lockdown right now. You can only go out for emergencies and, you know, ours was like a slow ramp up, but like now it's, it's kind of real. So like I've, I've been feeling a little bit more stressed. Um, my wife has actually, she's working in, um, the house now. So it's like, there's even more stuff going on inside here. So, you know, I'm rolling with the punches hanging in there, but that's what it's all about is kind of, uh, the adaptation to where we're at right now and how we're kind of feeling and dealing with it. So I just, uh, I'm really excited to hug you, Albert. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I mean, I, I express myself. I mean, it's not like an Italian cliche, but I hug people. I mean, I'm a hugger. And for me not to hug people is really like serious, serious deprivation of, of my identity. So I'm having a rough time right now. Yeah, I'm a handshaker. It's like, you know, I come up, you know, you, you know, a dad told you, look him in the eyes, give him a handshake. And like, while I was at work, it was like, okay, don't shake people's hands. And like, you know, don't get the end. Like the first day I totally blew that. And I was like shaking people's hands and the manager was like, hey, man, you gotta, you gotta stop doing that. And I'm just like, it's a habit, man. It's gonna take a little bit to, to break. So yeah, I definitely feel that. But um, we got your good friend Hudson Taylor here, and why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Because I am super excited to talk to him. Oh man, yeah, it's just um, I'm really, first of all, really excited because I feel like lately we've been really blessed to have people from such diverse fields and backgrounds. You know, we've been talking to some opera opera folks and then a cellist, and we talk to our usual denim dudes. Uh, uh, Hudson, I've wanted to talk to for a while because um, he's one of those one of those special dudes that you just want to uh, you know, put a lab and, and make many of them because he's just such a positive force. And uh, he's just got an amazing story. He's a very, very accomplished uh, athlete, all-American, three-time all-American wrestler who also has just done incredible uh, activism work for various uh, human rights, um, uh, th- especially through his organization, Athlete Ally. And um, we met basically kind of through Huffington Post. I was doing a little a blog about classical music and um, he j- was doing uh, some writing. And we, I just really wrote a little bit of a note, a fan note saying, oh, 
dude, I, I read something on Huffington Post and it was so great. And he wrote back to me and we started talking. I told him I'd done a little wrestling on a club at, in, in college and immediately just like told him, I really wish there had been more people like you around when I was in school because I was a closeted gay dude hearing a lot of homophobic, comment, homophobic comments on, you know, at the gym working out. So I was like, wow, this dude's doing righteous work. And I, it was just awesome that we, we got to meet. And then I, I got involved and did a little bit of, of work trying to promote the organization. And I became friends with Hudson, his really amazing wife, one of the co-founders of, of Athlete Ally, uh, Leah, and just feel like they feel like family to me. And, you know, they've been busy. I've been busy. They have a young daughter. So we've been a little out of touch. So this is actually catching up with a friend, also hearing a great, a great story about, about someone who's doing really important work. All right. And now for the official bio. Hudson Taylor is a three-time NCAA All-American wrestler from the University of Maryland and ranks among the top five pinners in NCAA history. He is a formal wrestling coach at Columbia University and is the founder and executive director of Athlete Ally. Founded in 2011, Athlete Ally's mission is to activate athletic communities to exercise their leadership to eliminate homophobia and transphobia in sports. Since its founding, Athlete Ally has visited over 300 colleges to provide LGBTQ respect and inclusion trainings successfully fought to add sexual orientation to the non-discrimination clause of the Olympic Charter, helped overturn the hijab ban in international basketball, and helped to fight to increase the number of women in FIFA governance. With over 400 Olympic, Paralympic, and professional ambassadors and 25 campus chapters, Athlete Ally continues to help athletes at every level of the sport use their platform with a purpose. Hudson, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Terrific. Well, you know, some people, they have a great story. It's, you know, you could just tell this, the, the key part of their story and it seems to like everything lines up and you kind of have this illumination that this person is uh, just got something special to give. And, you know, you're, the minute I heard your story, it stuck with me and it's very easy and I've told a lot of people your story. You know, you're in college, you're at the University of Maryland, and you're just doing two things you're, uh, that put together somehow give you this very, very uh, strong uh, awareness of a, a certain situation in our society. You're, you're an athlete, but you're also taking theater classes, majoring in theater, and you're noticing some things that you're not very, very uh, pleased to witness. So could, take us back to college. What's going on there? You're an athlete, Tell us about what was going on. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin at the beginning, beginning. Um, I started wrestling when I was six years old. It's been probably the most important thing in my entire life that I think like a lot of athletes, um, you know, sport, I think, is one of the greatest socialization mechanisms in the world, right? It teaches boys how to become men. It teaches girls how to become women. And, you know, as a young wrestler, I was taught a very specific form of masculinity, that taught me how I should look, how I should act, how I should dress, how I should speak. And I think unfortunately, because of the culture of sport, a lot of those lessons were very homophobic, were very sexist. And so you know, I grew up in a sports culture in which I used homophobic and sexist language to diminish my teammates, to um, kind of really isolate and exclude anybody who didn't conform to that narrow definition of what sport deemed uh, acceptable. But the thing about me is I, I was a very good wrestler at a very early age. But um, as a wrestler growing up in a soccer town, I, nobody cared that I was good at wrestling. And so I started to just do the things that I wanted to do and like. And, and I got involved in, in choir and then in theater. And then when I was in high school, I was in the lead in lots of musicals and plays. And, you know, of course, uh, the 16-year-old kid has the dream of becoming a famous actor and you know I'm like I'm gonna be a Broadway singer and so um yeah I, I so I when I when I came time to get recruited as a wrestler I, I started at the University of Maryland as a theater major and a music minor and vocal performance um I and I was a part of two very different worlds you know theater is a is a 
and the arts in general, I think are a place of expression and acceptance and um, they invite you to um, try on different shoes, you know, to, to really not, you know, to express your emotions, to be vulnerable in ways that sport is really antithetical to a lot of what you're taught in sport. And so, I don't know, just when I was at Maryland, it, it very, very shortly after um, starting in Maryland, I had friends in theater who were actually coming out as members of the LGBTQ community. And uh, it was really the first time that I had friends in theater who were, who were out about their sexual orientation. Um, most of my theater friends in high school were, were closeted at the time. So, you know, you knew, but you didn't know. But, um, but in colleges, just, it just became so clear, right? That on the one hand, my theater friends were coming out and they were being treated with dignity and respect. And then on the other hand, I was still a part of this world that, that used homophobic and sexist language on such a regular basis. And um, I'd like to say that my allyship and advocacy happens like overnight. It absolutely did not. It was a very long, slow process of, you know, getting educated and getting comfortable in my own skin, being on a, on a college wrestling team. But I ultimately got to a place in my career where I was like, you know what? There's no reason why sport isn't a place where everybody can be accepted and respected regardless of their sexual orientation, right? Like that is a choice that every athlete, every coach, every sport governing body is choosing to keep in place by doing nothing. And, you know, when an athlete has a certain amount of, uh, success in their sport, they have cultural capital, they have privilege, like people are going to look to them and care what they have to say. So my senior season, I decided to really start speaking out as an ally, start trying to start a conversation, uh, engage in these issues a bit more proactively. And so um, I started my season, my senior season by wearing an LGBTQ equality sticker on my headgear to show support as an ally for the community. Um, in response to that, my entire life changed. Uh, I really, you know, it was such a small, simple gesture. I didn't really think much of it, but um, a few very important things happened. First, it started a lot of very difficult dialogue with my teammates. We got in a lot of heated fights about why I was wearing that sticker. Um, this is also in the midst of marriage equality debates that are, are happening sort of nationwide. Um, but one day after practice, one of my coaches pulled me aside and was like, you know, Hudson, I see you wearing this sticker. I see you talking about LGBTQ issues. Like, would you be willing to do an interview about why you are an ally? I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. Like, no problem. Happy, happy to. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but that coach of mine was actually closeted. So he was there hearing me have these debates and conversations with my teammates, um, not feeling personally comfortable saying something himself. But then the second thing that happened was um, when I did that interview, I asked if they would share my email address uh, with the article because I was like, you know what? Progress doesn't occur unless we talk about issues, unless we, we disagree, we debate. And so being the kind of idealistic, naive college kid that I was, I wanted to talk to people about you know, what we could be doing to change sport for the better. And so after this article posted with my email address about you know, two days later, uh, I opened up my email and, you know, I had about 2000 emails from closeted athletes from across the country who wrote to me and said, Hudson, I, I read this article and I'm going to try out for my wrestling team. I'm going to go into the locker room and not be afraid. I'm going to start standing up and speaking out as an ally. And I was bawling reading a lot of those emails because, um, my sport has been my whole life. It's, it's very central to my identity. It's opened all these doors for me. I, if I think about my life without sports, I can't really imagine who or where I would be. And these emails made it really clear that, um, that there's an entire population of people that is being really systematically excluded from having the same experience that I had. And if I could get 2,000 emails as a wrestler, imagine if I had been a football player or a team or a league taking a similar stance. And so that was really the genesis of Athlete Ally, that there's never been a successful social justice movement for minority group without the support of the majority, that if we could get more uh, athlete allies to be standing up and speaking out and sort of rolling up their sleeves on this work, um, maybe we could change sport for the better. And so, yeah, I uh, spent the last nine years now working to end homophobia and transphobia in sport. 
trying to build this organization and build this movement of folks who are, uh, I don't know, trying to make sport more inclusive. It's kind of wow. amazing because I've, I've known you for a while now and there's actually lots of details to that story I did not know before. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize that you had brought into college that interest in theater and singing and, and music. Uh, I thought that was something that you picked up in college. I didn't realize that was already part of your part of what you were interested in. Yeah, it was. A, it's actually a huge part of my recruiting process. I mean, I, I was being recruited by a lot of Division One programs, but you know, you wanna you wanna laugh at an experience. Uh, try to see a Division One wrestling coach recruit you for theater. Um, you know, like try to talk up their theater department. It's like they could not feel more out of place. You know, <laughs> uh, we have the great great stage stuff. You know, like no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. At the time then that you've, you're having, I mean, first of all, it's, it's incredibly um, bold and courageous to take on an issue on principle. First of all, you were doing this for, as a principle, uh, the principle of equality and not because you yourself felt oppressed and felt like you needed to take action. So tell me, why do you think you're able, why do you think that you were able to to understand that that was something that you should do compared to someone who says, well, that doesn't really impact me. I'm not, I'm not gay. Why should I care if gay people are, are discriminated against? So I'm just curious, where did that come from? So the long story, which nobody ever hears in the sort of interviews and sound bites is while I started as a theater major, uh, I didn't end as a theater major because I soon found out that you can't really have time to be a division one athlete and, be a part of any shows, any, any choirs, any, you know, acapella groups, all the things that I would have really enjoyed doing, I had zero time for. Um, but at Maryland, they have a individual studies program where you can create your own major. So very shortly after my freshman year, I was like, you know what, I'm going to create my own major, uh, which is really going to be my own exploration of theater and art and so I started to take a lot of art classes I um and my major that I created was interactive performance art so the whole idea was more street art more uh sort of political performances uh I don't know I was I was I was in DC when Obama was running for office like I was I was feeling I was ready for change right and <laughs> so um uh so anywho, a lot of the classes that I, that I chose to make a part of my major were philosophy classes, women's studies classes. Um, and it was a, a lot of those courses that really changed my whole entire perspective on a lot of different social justice issues. I mean, um, probably for me, the most fundamental class was actually existential philosophy because, you know, I, I I don't think a lot of people really think about their legacy or like, what's the point of live, of life? Like, why are we here? What, what do we, what do you want to, what legacy do you want to leave behind? And, and uh, a lot of those philosophy classes just made me kind of question the kind of person I wanted to be. And, um, you know, if I, I kind of got to this place where I realized if I was going to live a life that I was going to be proud of, I needed to do, to define my own personal core values. And so as I was like, defining my own core values and then taking these queer theory classes and learning about how I was like a part of so much of the, you know, isolation and oppression of, you know, I'm, I'm a white straight cisgender man. Like I, I and, a, and an athlete, like I am a part of a community that it has done a lot of damage, a lot of harm and continues to do a lot of harm around the world. Um, and so it was really the, these sort of the, the philosophical, journey of saying, you know what, like, I want to own, I want to own my legacy. I want to take responsibility for the history of which I am a part, both the good and the bad. And, um, and so it was, you know, again, it was a lot of the education work, uh, learning about my own privilege. But then I think the other piece of this is, uh, I was a damn good wrestler. Um, you know, I was, uh, top, top wrestler in the country. And I think, with athletic success comes a level of permission to say what you think, to do what you want. Um, if I had been half as good at my sport, I think I would have been a lot less confident in speaking out about the things I believe in. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. Um, 
the what we read about your bio says you are a damn good wrestler and <laughs> i believe it i've seen the stripes on your belt too so i can definitely tell you uh you're doing things um when you spoke about philosophy i'm not sure uh did you study any john rawls in the um veil of ignorance so what that brought up for me was who do you want as a teammate whenever you think about you know who else is on your team you know regardless of the sport it doesn't matter who they are you want someone who's going to bring your team to another level so what does it matter what their sexual orientation is who they identify as you know race creed color what they wear on their head yarmulke hijab anything you know what you want on a team is a really great athlete next to you pulling you up so it seems so much of the you know, philosophical education that you got was really just bringing that into it. So whenever you uh, speak to athletes and you, you know, speak to other people, what kind of philosophies do you really teach? Because obviously this isn't just don't do this and don't do that. It's like, hey, let me teach you. Let me educate you and bring you up to another level. Yeah, um, I think it's a great question. I, I think the, the truth is, is that when working with a group of athletes, I'd say nine times out of 10, um, when I go into a room of athletes, it's the very first time there's actually ever been a conversation about LGBTQ issues. So even though the world in 2020 is very different in terms of its level of acceptance and respect, um, the, the level of knowledge of comfort talking about these issues in sport is still relatively low. So, you know, Typically, um, I, I think in order to affect change, we need to find alignment on two things. Why should you care about the thing that I'm talking about? And what should you do about it? Right? And, and so the first piece of that, I think, is the way in which we align on the why. Um, there's a great book that I read very early in my athlete ally journey uh, called The Honor Code, which um, was a really important book and my thinking about how, to, how we affect culture change. And in that book, it looks at um, different, different pieces of history and um, kind of examines how large-scale social change happened in a very short period of time. So foot binding in China, you know, was done for thousands of years, and then in the span of about 40 years was completely eliminated. Uh, dueling was the way that everybody used to settle their disputes, and then again, in about 40 years, gone. So it's an interesting thing because you would think that something that's so ingrained in a culture wouldn't be able to end in a single generation. And yet this, the, the main sort of hypothesis of this book or, or is like the way in which this happens is not by telling people what is right or wrong. But if you look at these moments of histories, history, the way that this happened it was by redefining the dominant identity of the audience. And so to your point about what it means to be a good teammate or what it takes to be on a winning team. Um, I think that the way in which we get people in sports to align on the why is really by redefining what it means to be an athlete, to be a good teammate, to be a champion. Um, you know, if I ask a room of athletes what they care about, most of them will say winning, right? I want to win. <laughs> and so I think a lot of the work that we do is first and foremost trying to make it clear that sportsmanship is synonymous with allyship, that, uh, the, that diversity is beneficial to athletic success. If, we, if you have any sports team in which every kid was from the same exact town, you know, a professional team where every, where every person on the team was from the same town, it wouldn't be a very good team, right? Like it's, it's through diversity of experience and um, that teams and that teams succeed and become excellent. Um, and that's no different when we think about, uh, I think, what LGBTQ athletes can offer to a team. Um, the, sad, the sad truth, though, is that, you know, uh, LGBT, LGBTQ athletes drop out of sports at twice the rate of their heterosexual counterparts, right? And, and only 24% of LGBTQ youth even participate in sport. So from the outset, we're already missing out on this huge talent pool. Um, so sorry, long-winded way of saying is I think we align on the why in really talking about what we're for, what we, what we believe sport should be. Um, I think that most people would agree that sport should be something that's, uh, that anybody is able to access and thrive within. Um, and so I, I, 
I think we can get a lot of people to agree on on that piece of it. I think the more challenging next step is, well, what do you want me to do about it? Why should I actually take action and, and change my language, change my behavior, or encourage other people to do the same? And I think that's, that's um, not only a, a sort of ongoing challenge in our work, I think, you know, it's, it's a challenge across social justice movements. We're in this amazing moment of athlete activism where, you know, you're having the most recognizable athletes in the, in the world are actually talking about social justice in a way that, you know, I think more frequently than they have had in generations past. However, there's very little allyship within that advocacy, right? The athletes who are talking about racial justice are still athletes of color. The athletes talking about gender equity are predominantly still women. Um, and so I still think we have a, a bridge that needs to be built or mended in getting people who aren't personally impacted by a form of, of prejudice to roll up their sleeves and try to do something about it. And, um, and so as a result, the athletes that we see actually engaging on LGBTQ issues usually have somebody in their life that's a member of the community. They have a, per, a close personal connection, a, a sibling, a close friend, um, their parents, you know. Um, but I think in, if, if things are really going to change, that, that we're going to have to build a better culture of allyship, uh, not only in sport, but I think outside of sport. You mentioned that coach who sort of confided in you in, at Maryland. That was at the time you were there? Or was that something that you learned afterwards? I learned afterwards. Yeah, I, I didn't know that at the time. Wow. And, wow, that's incredible. Um, obviously, our world has changed. You know, when I first met you, Hudson, uh, there was no gay marriage. You know, and I'm married now. So the world has changed. At the same token, I don't think there is an active, openly gay professional football player or, or baseball player or basketball player. Colin Martin is on the men's side, unless we should, we should specify sort of the, the difference between the two because there are some amazing uh, sort of badass out professional female athletes. Um, on the men's side in the sort of the big four, big five professional men's sports, you know, you have Colin Martin, who's a major league soccer player. Um, Ryan Russell just came out in the NFL. I don't know if he's with a team right now. I should know that. Um, but, you know, we can count the number of active, openly gay athletes on, in the men's sport on, on one hand. <laughs> um, you know, and if you talk about sort of the, the, the long history uh, of all these teams and leagues, there are still very few athletes, current or former, who have come out. And so, uh, yeah, we're still, we're still at the very beginning of a lot of this work. This work. I think we're still in an era of firsts for a lot of sports. Um, yeah, because, I, because when you really think about it, I mean, uh, racial uh, social justice issues were very impacted by sports. Imagine racial equality being an issue in, in, without Jackie Robinson. You know, you just can't even imagine it. It's so integral. Um, uh, you know, clearly there's a very large number of, uh, black, uh, black athletes that, that people were seeing their struggle visibly. And, and, you know, some of the struggles for people who have, you know, th that are gay and closeted is that people j simply don't know. You, d you, you just wouldn't know unless you were closer, unless that person shared that, that confidentiality with you. But I'm just curious now, having done athlete ally for nine years, do you kind of feel like, is there a little bit of a a tipping point really uh, going back to that honor code idea of how social change happens where the momentum builds up. Okay. Now there's gay marriage. I mean, in a way, could you sort of say, Hey, the, the in certain ways, the culture has changed in like how much, I mean, are kids still calling each other faggot in a high school, uh, you know, locker room and beating up gay people. I mean, is that, I, I don't really know. I'm not in high school now and I don't know, if I could have been out in high school, I don't really know. So that would be my little research project that would be to actually to know what these kids are going to be, what, what's happening right now in, in, in the locker room. So at 1990, the average age of a person coming out was about 26. Today, that average age is 13 uh, or so. So kids are coming out much, much younger, which means, which I think is an indicator of a much more inclusive, respectful climate for them to come out in. 
Um, but, and, and, and there has been sort of more and more athletes coming out year after year, but, um, I do think that there are still major issues in, um, depending on the sport and depending on where that sport is being played. Right. So geography plays a huge role in this. Right. And I would, and I, you know, I think different sports get a bad rap or, or, or some sports are assumed to be inclusive. Some sports are assumed to be homophobic. When I think the real truth is, is that every sport on every team is its own little universe and its own little culture. You know, you could be in the deep South, but if you have a great coach and a great captain on that team and like really strong, inclusive leaders, um, I think that environment can be a really positive one, right? Uh, on the same token, you know, you can be in, in the most liberal, progressive, like have the best policies, but if the, the kids on that team or the coach or the people in positions of power don't get it or don't care, um, that could be still a pretty hostile environment. And so I would say geography plays a huge role in it. Um, I, I think the other piece of this, and this is not to get too academic, but I think, um, you know, you mentioned sort of the, the relationship between uh, sort of racial uh, inequality or, or sort of progress that was made in race, race relations in this country and, it's, and how it happened in and through sport. I think one of our challenges on LGBTQ work is that um, sport is a gendered space, right? It's like one of the few institutions in the world that is sex segregated. And, and so the formation of one's masculinity, the formation of one's femininity is tied to the rules of the sport they play, right? Certain athletes based off of the type of sport they play are assumed to be more masculine or assumed to be more feminine. Um, and so I think there's an interesting correlation between the physical intimacy of a sport and the level of acceptance of a sport, right? And so if you, if you cast a global net and you say, okay, where have the most athletes come out and where is there the most homophobia in sport? I think you see that the most athletes have come out in sports that don't have physical intimacy. They are the individual sports, the ones in which there's no physical contact between uh, you know, it's runners, it's tennis players, it's swimmers. Uh, whereas where you see, I think the most homophobic behavior is in those sports where there's close physical contact between athletes. And when you have a sport that's so important to a young kid's formation of their identity and couple that with the close physical intimacy of the sport, I think you create an environment in which the natural thing to do is to use the language you've been given to build yourself up by putting someone else down. And so unfortunately, I, I still think that even if a kid isn't homophobic and doesn't have actual, you know, like quote unquote homophobic beliefs, they're still using homophobic language as the tool to assert their masculinity and, and diminish someone else's. Um, and I think that happens at every level of sport all over the world. I think that's so gay. You know, when I go to all these schools and talk to kids and talk to athletes, I asked them two questions. How many of you in the last week have heard somebody say that's so gay? Regardless of where I go, regardless of what age level I'm talking to, uh, I'd say about 95% of the hands go up. Second question, how many of you, when you heard that, heard someone speak out against it? Pretty much every hand goes down. So there's still a, a language that is uh, less welcoming, less inclusive than it really should be. Yeah, I can definitely see those questions um, really making an impact and also the the hands going down on the second question. But one thing you said was the physical intimacy um, breeds a little bit less um, when it comes to, to gender and, you know, kind of verbal inequality. And um, I actually want to challenge that point a little bit because I think, you know, one sport that um, you and I both kind of belong to is um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I think that is the most inclusive sport that I have been a part of in my entire life because I have been mopped on a mat by a child and by a woman. And it is not anything else. It is time on the mat and it is experience that puts you where you're, where you're at. And you can't look at someone and judge someone and be like, oh, you're a woman, I'm gonna beat you and have that be true. There are so many 
amazing women athletes in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And there are young athletes, there are gay athletes, there are people of color athletes. There's everyone is entitled to that sport. It's very physical. And um, I, I think it's very open. I mean, that at least from my experiences, and I've trained in three different schools. So I don't know if you see the same thing there, but I feel like BJJ is one of the most inclusive out of all of that. But, you know, compared to collegiate stuff, that may be a little bit different because it's a private club. No, I mean, I think uh, you're right. I mean, I think BJJ has a beautiful culture in many ways. Um, now, obviously, we know that there are, in any sport, there are people who are not welcoming, not inclusive. I think that holds true for jujitsu as well. Um, but I think you said one thing in there that's really important, and that's, you know, you've, you've gotten, you've trained with and probably gotten submitted by, by women, by children, right? And that context, that, that, that right there is a lesson that most athletes are never able to be taught, right? So, you know, as a young wrestler in a sex segregated sport, anything that was perceived to be feminine was bad, was weaponized, right? But in jujitsu, like, you learn to respect that women are girl because they just beat the crap out of you. Right. And you learn that their femininity is a form of strength. It's not something that's an insult. Um, and so, you know, this hasn't come too much into athlete allies work, but I'm a huge proponent of, I think all sport pre puberty should be mixed. Um, I think boys and girls should be playing sport with one another much more intentionally. Um, I think that early sex segregation in sport teaches really problematic things about masculinity and femininity. I think it teaches sexism. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a very uh, accurate pushback. But I think there's a uniqueness in jujitsu that, um, you know, we're given, con we're given that, that, uh, that lesson, <laughs> yeah. um, that technical lesson often. Yeah, well... I mean, definitely respect that rebuttal there, but um, you said uh, pre-puberty uh, mixed gendered sports. Could you go into that a little bit? Because I think that is actually really, really interesting. And you and I both have uh, children, so we're both uh, raising them. So tell me a little bit about that, because that is kind of, I haven't heard that before at all. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time you told me that. I was like, Hudson, once again, my mind is blown. I've never heard that discussed before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... So, so I, let, let me backtrack in a second. Cause I, so for athlete allies work and our theory of change, there's three main objectives that we're fighting for. Um, the, the first is that, you know, everyone needs to be educated on LGBTQ issues. I think uh, coaches in particular lack a lot of this information. So we should have a baseline of education for someone to assume that level of responsibility in a young person's life. Um, second thing that we really work for is policy uniformity. So the policies governing sport should be universally inclusive. Oftentimes it's very patchwork from school to school, sport to sport. Um, and then the third thing that we're fighting for is really athlete activism to be the norm, right? We want, I want it to be assumed that an athlete is an ally, is an activist, is going to roll up their sleeve and fight for others. Um, but the fourth piece of this is, is rethinking the sex segregation of, in sport, is rethink, is creating more mixed opportunities for men and women to play sport together. The, one of the challenges, I think, of, of our entire sporting system is that it's built on the false notion that, uh, that people, f that, uh, that all human beings, beings fall neatly into two categories, right? There, we, we are seeing more people come out as non-binary um, we're going to have more intersex athletes participating in sport, more trans athletes participating in sport. Um, and the things that make an athlete exceptional and great at a sport ultimately can't be boiled down to a single molecule. So I think 50 years from now, 100 years from now, um, the categories of, of what is competitive and what is wh how we class athletes is not going to be based on you know, male or female, it's going to be on other characteristics that we deem, you know, uh, like tied to athletic success. Um, and so, you know, that's, that, that's what I think the, like the long path is. I think we're very far from that. Um, so as I just think about those intermediary steps, pre-puberty mixed sports 
is kind of one of the first easiest um, things for us to reconsider. Um, you know, if, if someone listening or anybody you talk to, if they really feel strongly that boys and girls and men and women can never play sports together for some physical reason, um, okay, fine. We can have that debate at another time. However, pre-puberty, there's that those concerns should be completely, um, shouldn't be present, right? So I really believe that if more boys got struck out by girls in Little League Baseball, <laughs> they would learn a really important lesson, right? Um, you know, and I, and I do think that a lot of this is tied to the entire sports sector. I think the, the sex segregation in sport at a really early age is what leads to, you know, very few women coaching men's teams, right? Why is it that that we're not considering women for coaching men's teams in the same way that men are being considered for coaching women's teams. I think it's, it's that this sex segregation kind of teaches us to value male athleticism more than we value the accomplishments of women and girls in sport. And then that leads to how much coverage is ha happens on television, which in turn leads to viewership numbers and revenue. Um, so I just think that there's this domino that really starts from the moment you step onto that playing field and step up to that T-ball. Uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Um, I actually want to add a little bit of fuel to your fire. Be, uh, and you might not know this. Uh, and it's kind of a weird tangent, but um, my wife watches a lot of Asian TV shows. And I know one, that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And one of like the, the big kind of story types, there's obviously like a bunch of few story types, is um, one is that a woman is posing as a male in either like a band, a sport, or in the military and is like one of the elite top performers, but they have to cover up that they're not a woman. Hmm. Um, so there's actually a lot of this kind of discussion. Uh, one of the, the probably bigger TV shows is a Chinese one. It's called Arsenal Military Academy. And um, like basically the woman's aide to the, the top guy is um, a woman who conceals herself and only he knows about it. And it's just so strange that, you know, I half the time, you know, I, I, I pop in, I watch like this a episode of this show, an episode yeah. of that show. But I've noticed that theme across different, um, you know, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, different mm. shows. So it's a thing. I mean, like it's really out there because there are top females that compete with men. And why does it have to be any different? Um, it's just so crazy that that it has to be exactly like you said, binary, when there are women that compete at the very, very top level. So um, I would uh, invite you to take a look into that because that might I'm help in. you fuel your fire. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. So Hudson, I mean, you're, you told us so many things that show your kind of sensitivity, your, um, your, the way that you analyze and use your mind to understand and take apart problems and issues and, and figure out what they really mean and ultimately what you're going to do about them. I just wanted like, just to connect you to the core of, of what Adam and I have been doing so far with the podcast is to talk a little bit about vulnerability. Um, you know, people see a confident athlete and they don't think of vulnerability. Um, we, we actually had one of our earlier uh, guests was a very accomplished skier who talked about, um, you know, a lot of the issues that he had with anxiety and performance anxiety. And I'm just curious, I mean, did you personally like feel vulnerable um, in, in, admit, in being involved in the theater at all? Was it just, oh, you did. Okay. So tell very, us about that. Very much so. Okay. So I, I'm just curious, what is, what is your, what is your take on what vulnerability is, how you can, you know, confronted and how you see it now. Cause we, 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 you know, I'm just curious what your definition is and how, how you develop that idea of what vulnerability is. I, um, I haven't given a ton of definitional thought into what, how I would define vulnerability, but I think that I would view vulnerability as engaging in a particular type of action or behavior in front of a, in front of a particular audience right? Or, or, you know, that some audience is going to be aware of what you've said or done. And, you know, I think we all, we all, every single person constructs an image of who they are, who they want to be, who they want to present to the world, right? We're all um, 
performing aspects of ourselves on a daily basis, right? Um, and I think that vulnerability comes when your performance of self is uh, con- more constant, right? When, you, when you're not compartmentalizing how you're feeling, what you're thinking, the, the hobbies that you're interested in, I think vulnerability is consistency of self across all interactions with all people. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so for me at an early age, like, you know, I, uh, again, I was a wrestler growing up in a soccer town, so nobody cared about wrestling. It wasn't cool. I got made fun of. I was, um, it was constantly like, what is that leotard thing that you're wearing? Um, are you grabbing one another? Right. Like I was a total outcast, uh, until I hit puberty and moved to a new town that cared about wrestling. Right. (laughs) And all of a sudden I was like a cool kid. Um, it, you know, like overnight, it was very strange, but, um, that was in New Jersey, right? You went to, you went to high school in New Jersey. Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in the Princeton area and then I moved to North Jersey. Um, but you know, like in, in middle school, I was in the ballet, you know, and, and, Like, you know, that was, I don't know. I, I, again, because I got very good at wrestling at an early age, I, I was given permission to do things that other people wouldn't or couldn't. And so while I was terrified out of my mind of what people might think or what they might say, I had this athletic performance to fall back on, which was my kind of shield that allowed me to say, you know what, like, okay, I just beat everybody up on the wrestling mat. And so I'm going to go sing in the choir. I'm going to go be in a ballet. I'm going to go um, paint something or like, you know, just express myself and pursue the things that I'm interested in, passionate about without fully caring what people say. But, um, but it was really hard for me in high school because my high school is the number one wrestling high school in the country. Um, there was not a culture where you could be a wrestler and do anything else. Um, and so my freshman year, I was in the spring play and I, it was in a black box theater. And I remember being just absolutely mortified because, um, you know, I come out on stage and you know, I have all the stage makeup that one needs to play the part under the lights and, and, and sitting across the entire front row is my wrestling team. Um, you know, the majority of whom are, are juniors and seniors and, and, you know, I, I think, whenever you you're put into that place of vulnerability, you, uh, this little internal voice starts, um, narrating what you think is going on in their mind, (laughs) you know, what they think, what you think they're thinking of you, right. Regardless of whether or not it's true. Right. You, you, I don't think we can help. Like we write the script of what we think other people are thinking of us. And, um, and that was probably the clearest that that voice has ever been. Um, but then the, the show happened and then it, and then it ended and nobody really said anything and, and nobody gave me too much crap for it. Um, and I continued to do well at wrestling. And so my level of comfort leaning into that vulnerability, um, you know, increased a little bit. Um, with all that said though, I think that my, the rest of the, the, what I was taught through wrestling was I was very much um, taught not to show emotions. Right. So I was vulnerable in my, in my artistic pursuits. I was not at all vulnerable emotionally. Um, if I lost or was struggling, like I was not somebody to ask for help. I was, I'm, I'm a person that would turn inward that would get really silent that would even potentially like self-sabotage. Um, when I, when, when my like house of cards feels like it's falling down, I, I turn inward. Um, when, and I know that that's not healthy and it's continued to be not healthy. I think it's something that I still, even as an adult professional, um, haven't fully reconciled or, or figured out how to deal with. But, um, yeah, I mean, so it's weird because there's a lot of ways in which I've learned to feel comfortable with that vulnerability because of wrestling. But then there are also other ways in which I am not at all be comfortable being vulnerable because of wrestling. Um, yeah, I I totally feel that man and and thank you for that share cuz you know being thinking that thought of you know what are they thinking about me is what a lot of people deal with and that just that can breed so many either positive or negative thoughts and you know that's what a, is on a lot of people's mind. 
And the second part of our show is, you know, help building empathy and compassion. And I kind of want to talk about wrestling in jujitsu in this aspect where it's a very physical, you submit people, you throw people around, you know, it's a very combative sport, but how in that aspect do you think that developed your empathy or compassion towards another teammate or to another training partner? Because I feel like there is a little bit of that aspect there. And there's also a little bit of vulnerability of, you know, hey, I'm, you know, going up against a senior or a black belt, or I'm training with a white belt or, you know, a freshman, like how does your empathy and compassion play into a very combative sport? Man, I'm, uh, first of all, I should say I'm absolutely obsessed with jujitsu. I, you know, I wrestled my entire life and I am, I was a wrestler. I now am a jujitsu practitioner, right? Like I identify with jujitsu now more than I identify with wrestling, which is, really strange for me, but, um, but it's beautiful because I think jujitsu is one of the most vulnerability inducing sports that exists. Um, you know, I, I used to think that it was wrestling because, you know, in wrestling, um, it's literally one person physically beating another person. Right. And so there's nobody to turn to, to make an excuse to, you know, you can't, you can't blame it on another teammate. Um, you just got physically beaten by another human and that forces you to look in the mirror in a really uncomfortable way. Um, you know, and, and so I always thought that, that wrestling was that, uh, that sort of epitome of vulnerability until I walked into a jujitsu room for the first time with all of my wrestling accolades, you know, being super cocky, thinking that I was just going to destroy everybody because like, what is this jujitsu thing? And, and then I, you know, went with somebody who was, I don't know, half of my size and they just proceeded to choke me like, I don't know, five times in five minutes kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and it was a really humbling experience. It was like, honestly, one of the most humbling experiences I've, I can remember in a super long time, but I think the thing that I'm so in love with about jujitsu and, and that I think is, um, to me, it's like empathy. It's like, it's all these things that we've been talking about is, um, you know, like we go through life, everybody goes through life with almost being taught to not be vulnerable, right? You, you are taught to specialize in something that you become an expert at that becomes your career, your profession. And very rarely does anybody ever deviate outside of that skill set that they have been given and that they've worked on almost their entire life. And then as a result, there are very few spaces where you step forward and say, you know what, I'm okay being a white belt again. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into absolutely sucking at this thing, <laughs> you know, and, um, and jujitsu has really been that for me. And, and I think that everybody in jujitsu really chooses it, leans into vulnerability, chooses vulnerability because until you're a black belt, and like, you know, until you're like 10 years, 20, like who knows how many years from the moment you start, every single time you roll, every single time you train, you are going to be at the most vulnerable, uh, really, of it, that anybody could be because your life is in literally somebody else's hands. Um, and then I would just say, I, th I think the other thing, piece of this when it comes to empathy is also the other side of that coin that... Um, like, you know, sometimes you're the hammer, sometimes you're the nail. And when you are the hammer, uh, you're also taking like responsibility for the well-being of that person that you're training with or you're competing against. Um, and that's a tremendous amount of responsibility. And, you know, I think in order to be in any kind of any sport, any contact sport, any combat sport, uh, we have to be able to train at a super high level, but also train in such a way that people aren't getting injured. Right. And so there's this interesting tap dance between being like all out aggressive, trying to like win, <laughs> but then also realizing that my safety and your safety uh, are the most important thing here and that we actually want to leave here having a really good time. So I think I think that that teaches a, a certain amount of understanding and empathy and respect. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that a lot of people who participate in sport have a similar experience, regardless of the sport. 
Um, but I only really know my, my wrestling and jujitsu, uh, experience, but, um, but that vulnerability in that, that jujitsu has given me is something that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. It, it's so important to me. And it's something that I, I honestly look forward to getting beat up in, um, and being a big, be- the joy of being a beginner again is something that I would encourage anybody to, to do. I'm, I'm a serial hobbyist. I also try to pick up hobbies like I just, I, I'm now doing wet plate photography. So the, the kind of photography that was done in the 1880s, my photos don't even look like photos. They're just like blobs of color or black and white blobs. But um, I don't know, but there's just something so. Hudson, you totally cracked me up because I'd be watching your Instagram feed and I'm like, oh my God, I should be like, Brian, check it out. Hudson's, uh, you know, he's uh, baking this week. Yeah. And now he's on a, tri- a unicycle now he's juggling is like every week it was some other hobby magic oh my god uh, adam you got to see this dude do card tricks oh and there they oh, are. He busts out the cards <laughs> oh yeah he's really really good <laughs> at card tricks um i i think i love that idea that idea of not being afraid to be a beginner uh i i'm kind of the worst in that respect because i i am very self-conscious i live with someone who will take a class and not mind being uh, t- trying something new and I get I get very self-conscious like I want to do it I mean that's why I'm in the music field mm. I've never really taken a lot of music training because I I have such a an elevated sense in my head of what I think is great music making that you want to terrify me put me at the piano which I love to play but put me at a party with people uh, in the industry and ask me to play and I'm just like breaking out in a cold sweat. And that, that is something I would, I would love to improve in myself. I would love to be more, more fun, uh, have more fun being uh, the beginner at something. Do you think that you can do that? Um, like because of your knowledge of, of qual- you know, quality music and musicians, do you think you would be able to get to that place without significantly increasing your skill at the piano? I, I, you know what I mean? yeah, I absolutely know that I want to increase my skill <laughs> um, uh, before I'm going to be, you know, uh, comfortable at a party sitting down and playing while, while everybody's around. I will say there was one time that was a real eye opener. I was playing the piano on my, you know, by myself and I had an artist on the phone and he said, oh my God, who's, who's playing? That's really good. And I was like, oh, that was me. And he was in shock because like, I had never told him that I actually even play the piano. But I guess I, there's, there's two points I want to make about this. One is to remember your point that being a beginner is, can be really fun. And be, that, that without being that ability to accept being humbled, you're not going to get better at all. Whether it's, hey, I don't want to be embarrassed when I speak Italian you know, to my Italian family because I don't really speak Italian. But, well, it's not going to get any better if I don't try. So thank you for reminding me that. But I want to say another important point. It goes back to your hammer and your nail. You know, the hammer, if the hammer doesn't do the hammering right, the nail gets bent and nobody benefits by the activity. And I think we need to see as a culture that we can be more inviting and encouraging of other people for them to do their thing, whether it's to express themselves, try something, to be entrepreneurial, you name it. And I, I think that's where the, the, where the, it's not a zero sum game. It doesn't, it becomes sort of a, I will benefit by wanting the best outcome for that other person, because then I will be on the other side of that. I will be the beneficiary when there's something that I need to learn, get better at, improve at something that, that where I'm not the, the expert in the room. So I think that's, that's, that, that was great that you that you told that story. Uh, so you're doing this phot- photography thing. What else? Are you, what else have you been up to? Because I get a kick out of your hobbies. Um, so my my I, I only have so many hobbies that I can juggle at one time. Um, I my my main like thing when it comes to hobbies now is I, I want to find a hobby that is uh, tactile, so or or like dexterous, something with the hands um, that I can pursue within like a two to three hour time frame, right? I, I don't want a hobby that's going to take me like months and months and months to complete. I don't have time for that. But if I can ho- find a hobby that's like a good two to three hour commitment, 
and I can work at that, getting better at that over two and three hour increments, that's like my sweet spot. So, um, you know, I, I, I now have all my wet plate photography stuff. Um, I've really gone into pumpkin carving. So around Halloween, I, I, I have uh, some pumpkin carving. Uh, summertime, it's, well, under normal conditions, I, I have like all these sandcastle DVDs and books. And so I'm trying to like become a master sandcaster, <laughs> castle maker. Um, but yeah, you know, like, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of my form of my like self care is, is finding those things, which I'm honestly a beginner in, but, um, but I, I can like see incremental progress in my own self. Right. Not, it's not really for anybody other than for me. Um, and I'm okay with sucking at it un, until I'm not okay with it. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> one, yeah. one final, uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of coming up on an hour. I'm not sure if we want to start wrapping up, but, uh, your daughter, you have a young daughter. How old is she now? She is, uh, going to be two in July. Uh, two in July. What day in July is her birthday? 25th. 25 because i'm a july baby <laughs> what's your birthday uh, july 11 7 11 nice um yeah um yeah i, I asked us his daughter's named after an opera character tosca <laughs> who's very strong-willed that's right Italian intense italian diva. she is yeah, she kind of goes through some shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we. I don't even want to tell the story because I mean, she's she's got some uh, she's got some dark uh, moments in her life. Um, yeah. But but um, I mean, you obviously you've had a lot of life changing moments. Adams talked so much about you know being a dad and how that's impacted him. Are you surprised by the the amount of impact being a, a dad has had on you? Are you that is it pretty much kind of a little bit what you thought you might might be experiencing? Yeah, I mean, and you don't know this, so this is new news. Um, we have another baby due on, on the way uh, in July. So uh, I don't know if I told you that. Maybe I did. I kind of heard through a third party. Oh, really? Uh -oh. I did. Uh -oh. I did. Um, but I didn't know July, and I hope it's July 11th. It is. You know, so she's due the 19th, uh, but could be the 11th. <laughs> okay, you know, there you like, go. That's like perfect timing. But, um, no, I was just going to say, you know, um, we're going to have another baby girl. And so um, – and, you know, we're going to have two amazing, strong young women and, and I'm going to be in a room, a house full of women. Um, and it's interesting because I, I think that uh, everybody knows kind of their own childhood and their own experience. And that's the, the bar that you met that I'm at least met trying to measure against is like, well, what did I have as a kid? And what was my experience like? And what would I want for myself? And it's interesting when you have a, a daughter who's you know, how similar or dissimilar should that experience be? Um, and I don't know, I, th I think the thing that's just been, I'm all, because of the work that I do, I'm so hyper aware of uh, whether or not the things I'm doing are, are gendered. You know, like, am I, am I talking to her in a particular way because she's a little girl and not a little boy? Um, you know, am I buying a toy for her because she's a little girl, and not a little boy? Like, and, and so that, that to me is very, very interesting. And, um, I, don't know, I, I just, it's such a mystery, man. It's like, uh, what goes into making a, making a person who they are is, is a beautiful mystery. Um, I, you know, I'm pouring as much love and support and nurturing as I can. And she's a happy, happy little girl. Um, but she also is like totally her own person and totally likes what she likes, regardless of whether or not Leah or I try to steer her in any one direction. So it's, um, it's really cool just to see her grow and, um, you know, express herself in, in her own different unique ways. Definitely. Well, here's what I can say about you being a parent is that you embody the growth mindset so well that I don't think that they're going to have any trouble in the world. And the last little thing I want to say is uh, for people that are not um, familiar with jujitsu, it literally translates to the gentle art. So when we talk about all this crazy stuff on the mat, it's the gentle art that makes it all um, a thing. So between the gentle art and the growth mindset, you're going to raise some strong women. I don't have any doubts in my mind. Thank you. You've also made philosophy uh, teachers across America applaud tonight. <laughs> I mean, so, you so. were like the, the, the advertisement for why, uh, you know, the uh, education matters, why philosophy is important. 
I'm asking that question of the why. What should I do with my life? The examined life thinking. It's it's. I think、um, that's what I've always loved about knowing you. I, mean, I always think of myself as a curious person, but when I ever after I talk to you, I want to be more curious and do even more than I'm doing. And it's great to to reconnect. Please give Leah. Uh, a hug. I hope that when we get together the next time, we're beyond all this craziness. We can all just give each other a big embrace, and just want to thank you for your allyship and your passion to justice and your example. And I hope lots of guys hearing your story and、uh, and getting getting some of your wisdom today will it will have a big、uh, impact on them. And、uh, looking just forward to to staying in better touch. You're great.、Uh, you're a great dude, and we really appreciate that you gave us an evening of your time. Thank you so much,、uh, Adam. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure meeting you here today, and、uh, gonna go ahead and wrap this up. So this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato, and I'm Hudson Taylor. Thank you for listening. <laughs>